Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now, episode 222, for November 12th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 79. Security Now is brought to you by... The new Ford Sync, featuring hands-free calling, music search, and turn-by-turn navigation. All voice activated from Ford Sync. For more details and to enter to win a free Nano or Zune, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. Go to my PC, skip the rush hour traffic, and save time, money, and frustration by working from home with GoToMyPC. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things, you know, safety on the Internet and privacy and security. And he's the guy to do it. Just the guy you'd want to have on your side in a uh, in a troubled time. Mr. Steve Gibson from the Gibson Research Corporation, GRC.com. Hi, Joe Steve. Leo. Great to, to be see. with you again. Yeah. Episode 222. Which we're recording on 11-11. At 11. At 11. Yeah, so. that's... Wow. <laughs> wow. Lots of lit- alliteration today. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you don't... Again, this is not going to air until uh, the 12th, but we're right. recording on the 11th. I don't know if you you don't say happy Veterans Day, but uh, a tip of the hat to our uh, our men and women who are serving and have served in the armed forces. Yep. Um, we appreciate your service, and uh, we're having a big parade in Petaluma uh, at 1 o'clock. So oh, very cool. If you hear marching bands and... Uh, <laughs> Cannons firing and, and all of that. That's that's the Veterans Day parade going downtown. It's such an old fashioned community. I mean, we do stuff like that. And I love it. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, I wanted to drive the Mustang down the uh, <laughs> down the street, but I'm busy. <laughs> but our uh, our uh, our uh, uh, VP Finance, Lisa's husband, uh, Lisa and her husband Mike uh, own a beautiful 1967 cherry red Camaro. And mm, uh, nice. And uh, he and her he and, her, he and their six year old son is driving that in the parade with their huh. club. So that's really neat. So, my friend, it is time once again for a Q&A segment. Brought to us by our fantastic listeners. 334 uh, postings when I, wow. when I pulled the mail down, from which we selected uh, just a handful, but good ones, interesting ones. And uh, and a really really nice well sort of we, we, we wrap it up with I think it was the biometric horror story of the week. So, <laughs> we, you know, I was always ta- try to find something fun. I was talking to somebody uh, who works at Disneyland. He's um, he uh, is a program. Actually, works for Pixar, but he uh, he goes. He has a Disney one of those cards that lets you go to Disneyland all the time. And I said, well, ah. you, when you go there, do you scan your finger? I said. He said, yeah. I said, you should scan your knuckle. <laughs> he didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> He's a pro- computer programmer. He ought to know. We're, yeah, we're we're putting out the word anyway. So we have a bunch of security news. We've got uh, a little bit of a rata. I have a, a, a interesting spinright piracy uh, story to tell, and uh, and a bunch of great questions from our listeners that we will answer. Did you know? I don't know. I should have asked you this off the air, uh, but somebody has made a an iPhone application out of our vitamin D segment. 
I actually <laughs> do know. I've communicated with the author a number of times to, for him. He wanted permission, and I've said, oh, of course, and I aimed him at the vitamin D page where I had a... It has um, a link to that. Yep. Yep. And I, I had audio that was just the vitamin D stuff, and uh, a number of our listeners wrote to say, yep, vitamin D, the vitamin D podcast is on iTunes. We license our stuff uh, using the Creative Commons license for non-commercial uh, attribution share alike. So you're welcome to do mashups like that, uh, provided you're not making money on it, and uh, and you uh, and you have the same permissions, you share alike permissions. So I think that's really uh, a great way of sharing the information. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. So if you if you want to share um, Steve's great episode on vitamin D, what is it? Is what is it called? Do you know? I have. Oh, not- it's, I have it right here. I oh. just found it. It's called Vitamin D. Listen and learn. Ah, and uh, and you can and you can get it by just searching for Vitamin D on the uh, iTunes, iTunes store. And it, this application was made to promote awareness of this misunderstood quote vitamin information by Steve Gibson of GRC.com and designed by Ultra Software Solutions USSapps.com. So I think that's really neat, and it does have the audio of the show. What a great way to share all this information, and it's absolutely free. It says just like the sun. <laughs> so that's great that's perfect yeah that's really great yeah, thank you really cool. uss for doing that uh we let me you want to uh, do i'm sure some errata and news i would guess yes we got all that kind of stuff all right and uh and we had a patch tuesday we're recording this after the second tuesday of november and we know microsoft uh they're up to the same old routine as is pretty much everybody else so and uh Speaking of the iPhone, we have news of the very first iPhone worm. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a funny one. It's a wacky thing, yes. <laughs> we'll talk about all of that in just a second. I do want to mention uh, our newest sponsor on the show, uh, the, the great folks at Ford uh, who sell their cars with something called Sync. Do you know what Ford Sync is? S-Y-N-C. And it's from Microsoft, isn't it? It is. Oh, you do know. Yes, Microsoft Sync, know. that's what it is. Yep. Uh, I have a, a Ford Mustang that I'm in love with. That I bought a couple of weeks ago, and it has the sink in it. You know, I went actually to look now, at this. This is not the kitchen sink. No, S Y N C. It's like syncing up ah. your iPhone, kind of. Okay. Uh, but it doesn't just work with the iPhone, it works with the Zoom, works with all the MP3 players. Um, you know, it's funny, I went in to look at the sink, <laughs> and I walked out with a Mustang, <laughs> <laughs> which I happen to be in love with, but the sink is in the Mustang, so I'm a, a now a major sink fan. Sync is uh, hands-free, of course, voice command, not just of your mobile phone. You know, dial Steve Gibson at home. It certainly does that. But also of any media player. You could even put music on a USB key. It indexes it. And then you could say, uh, you know, play uh, a box sonata or play ACDC, and it will play the song you select. You can even say play similar. It'll play similar cars. The point, uh, songs, the point is that when you're driving, you don't want to take your hands off the wheel or your eyes off the road. And with Ford Sync, you do not need to. It understands what you're saying. You can make calls. You could search and listen to music. Podcasts, too, by the way. I say, play security now, 222, and it plays it. It even has turn-by-turn directions. Now, even if you don't have the, you know, the Garmin or the screen in your, in your car, it will tell you where to go. You can put in the routes that you take to school, to work, uh, to grandma's house, whatever. It will tell you what the traffic is like what the weather is like. You could send text messages with certain phones to people on your contact list. You can re- it'll read the messages to you, all while keeping your eye on the road. 
I have fallen in love with this. I get in the car and it starts playing my uh, audio book. I get out of the car, it stops, picks up where it left off the next time I get in. It is just incredible. It uh, has a USB connector and an audio connector. So if you have, for instance, on the Zune or the iPod, if you have, or in fact, by the way, it works with the Motorola Droid. I just tried it. If you have the USB cable for your device, you plug that in, plug in your device, and it and it's charging your device, and it syncs up. It will index all the music, put it up on the screen if you have a screen, or you could talk to it. It is just amazing, and it sounds so good. So, so what are, what do our listeners do to get this? I mean, well, you've got it built into a new car. Right? I think you, I, you know, that's a good question. I think you have to buy a Ford, Lincoln, or Mercury <laughs> automobile. But I guess, okay. I guess it's a good reason if you're in the market for a car, it's something to look for. Uh, I don't think you can get it standalone. So there's no like sync add-on kit for That's a, you know what I'm going to have to ask them. I don't think so. I think you have to buy it in a new car. But if you're buying a new car, it's a very good reason to get a Ford. I have to tell you, I've tried all. I mean, you know, we have. I won't name other manufacturers. We have other cars with other systems that are not as good. Even state of the art 2010. This is the best one on the market. You, I'll tell you one thing. You can do whether you have a Ford or not. You can go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com. And enter to win one of 15 free Nanos or 15 free Zunes, one a day through December 8th. The instructions are on SyncMyRidePodcast.com. Or if you're on Twitter, just send a tweet with the hashtag pound SyncMyRidePodcast. Say, I love Steve Gibson and security now. And incidentally, pound SyncMyRidePodcast and you'll automatically be entered for the daily drawing. All the details at SyncMyRidePodcast.com. Yeah, you know, it's a shame you can't add it to some other car. But I'll be honest with you. Have you ever had like a muscle car? No, no. I've I never... was never a car guy until I drove this thing. And now it's like, mm, I... <laughs> <Last> <laughs> looking night, for... I'm looking hey, for excuses. I'll go get the pizza. Exactly. No problem. The, we, we, uh, uh, Ab, uh, our, our niece was, uh, was coming down, uh, up from Santa Barbara and uh, she was getting a ride. And the guy was going to Sacramento. And Jennifer said, I have terrible news for you. You'll have to go to Vallejo to pick her up. I said, no problem. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> I go right by Infineon. I'm saying, hey. <laughs> and I get, to so play with a, I get to play with a new technology gadget in the car while I'm, while I'm on the yeah, road. Yeah, so. it's really, really, uh, it's, a, it's a great thing. We're really glad to have them as a sponsor. So just go to SyncMyRidePodcast.com for more details. All right, so let's, let's hear what's happening in the world of security. Well, we have uh, pretty much all the regular culprits are present today. Um, <laughs> the usual suspects. <laughs> of course, top of the list is Adobe. By the way, remember last week I said I hate Adobe? Um, I still do. And now I discovered that in addition to installing this unasked for demo of the speech package, I, when, I last, when I rebooted my machine after a security update and then next ran IE, there was now a toolbar that it had added for the uh, speech demo that had appeared in now, IE. I just, I, I, we, had, just, we had talked last week about Flash doing that, right? Well, I'm sure that I remember, yes. And it, I, I, I tried it and I saw there is a checkbox, but you have to notice it uh, on the webpage before you download the Flash. Uh, so they, they, it's not even so, in the install. It's part of, It's like before you download. And did you see also the offer to install Google? I think it was a Google toolbar also. I don't remember what it was, but, but it was, you it was did a toolbar. see a demo for, for the speech app. Uh, no, I saw the toolbar thing. Okay. I don't know how this, but I, I, find, I, I just can't believe that they would install something with that at some point. However, fine, the print 
saying, we're going to install this. Oh, I'm sure it was there. I mean, but again, who sees but them? I'm sure it was there. I must have missed. Maybe there was a way to turn it off. Although I remember turning off the no, I don't want the Google toolbar. Yes, Thank you very much. That's the one I thought I saw. And yeah. I didn't see the other one. So, and <sighs> in fact, I meant to look, look through our mailbag because I figured our listeners would have said, oh yeah, I ran across that and here's where it was. But I, I ended up with filling up our Q and A, uh, sort of near the top of the, of the pull and never got through reading everything. So mm-hmm. I didn't confirm it. But in this case, we have Shockwave that has about 450 million users, which has five critical flaws, uh, four of them allowing arbitrary code execution. Um, I don't have Shockwave installed. So, so users should look in your browser's add-ons or extensions, rather. For example, in Firefox... It's not an extension. It's a plugin. That's where those sort of like the non-extra UI features, but the the more of the built-in browser enhancement plugins go there. Um, and so, for example, I've, I I see Adobe Flash, but not Shockwave, which is which is different than Flash. So so first of all, if you don't have Adobe Shockwave. In, for example, your Firefox plugins, don't add it. I mean, it's just more gunk, you know, and I'm never one for installing stuff you don't need. But if you do have it, there, there, it is exploitable. And so you definitely want to go to get.adobe.com slash shockwave. So that's the URL, get.adobe.com slash shockwave. And it will, as of this date, give you version 11.5.2.602. And anything earlier than that, which would be 11.5.1.601 and earlier, have these problems. So if you if your browser does have Shockwave, first of all, you may want to just remove it. If you don't think that you, you if you don't know you need it, I'm surviving quite most well. Most of the time, that. you don't. Yeah, most people use Flash now. Shockwave is not necessary on the web. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think basically when they talk about 450 million users, it's like yeah, well these people acquired it at some point <laughs> and it's still living in their machine, yeah. creating vulnerabilities they don't need. So maybe the I mean, what would make the most sense is if you know you don't need it, get rid of it, and if you do need it then make sure you've got 11.5.2.602, which you can get from get.adobe.com slash shockwave. Um, also, uh, Sun, the, uh, the latest version of the Java Runtime Edition has, I um, mean, the latest version has multiple vulnerabilities and no updates available. They've acknowledged multiple problems. Um, there it is, there is, Enough disclosed for problems to be, for exploits to be created on the net. Um, unfortunately, the only workaround is the workaround we all know all too well, which is disable JavaScript to prevent Java, um, the Java runtime edition components from being exploited until Sun updates themselves. One of these weeks, I'll, I'll be, I'll happily report that there's a new version of the Java runtime edition. At this point, there's notices all over the um, the um, uh, various security sites talking about a zero day problem. That is, a, you know, problems that have been acknowledged 
and are being exploited, but for which there's yet no patch, which is the so, case with Java Runtime Edition. A week ago, Java was patched, and, and you're saying it's, it has new holes now? Yes. <sighs> for crying out loud. Yes. <laughs> I can't believe it. Yes. They were just fixed. <sighs> yes. <clears throat> okay. Yes. Okay. Um, there's some some interesting news uh, from the EU, the European Union. Um, there, there's been a lot of issue over the rights of users to stay connected to the internet when they've been accused of file sharing. And you know, we've talked about sort of. I mean, there's there's really no global consensus yet. We, we talked about how now internet access is being considered a human right. Yeah. Whatever that exactly means, I think is unclear. But the idea being, well, it's really important. And so given that, the question is, what level of proof does an ISP need to be given in order to disconnect users? France, under strong lobbying pressure from the, from the music and film industry, has been proposing a three strikes and you're out approach where you are notified twice that you're, you know, that you are downloading illegal copyrighted content. And if you're found to be doing that a third time after two prior notices, you're disconnected for one year. Um, what's happening is the EU is trying to unify all of this various sort of n- unclear policy under a, uh, an, under a single agreement. And the good news is it's looking like Agreement is being reached, and internet users are going to get some 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 relief and a sort of a strong pro user result. Good. Where yes, where where none of this will apply. Where you can't simply be accused. Remember that we we talked about a story recently where just being accused of doing this, and where where the ISP was offering was being offered no proof. They, uh, there was there was ISPs that were under pressure from the um, the Motion Picture Association to disconnect users just because they said so, and the ISPs were saying, "Wait a minute, you know, we need more than that." So the good news is now it's going to require a court order that includes proof that this is actually going on. There so, is, you know, this is a larger issue. This is the ACTA Treaty, the Anti Counterfeiting Treaty, that has been negotiated, currently being negotiated in secret. And it's not just France. They want to get this through all over the world. And by the way, it's really sneaky because if the treaty is ratified, the U.S. Congress has to make this the law in the U.S. as well, even Ooh. though it would never, nobody would ever, you know, concede to these really draconian provisions. It's, it's, it's anti-American. The, the, the treaty is in secret, but some of it has leaked out. Michael Geist of Canada has leaked it out. And it is, in fact, calling for that three strikes provision with three strikes accused, not three strikes conviction. Uh, France modified it, but the other countries are considering this. Three strikes accused and off the Internet for life and your name being distributed so that other ISPs will not give Whoa. you service. This I mean, goes way further horrible. than... Than, than, so, than so, the article because because I because I was reading an article from the Associated Press that was talking that was that MSNBC covered. That it's was a much bigger this. story than this. And if you want to read more, EFF.org, read about the ACTA treaties. And Michael Geist's blog in uh, Canada was an excellent blog. He was the one who found these 
provisions. Now, it's still being negotiated, but the point was it was being negotiated in secret. They obviously didn't want anybody to know about this. Now that it's in public, we need to say, hey, that's not okay. That's not acceptable. Yeah, this is not okay. Yeah, Off I'm, for life. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Come on. EFF I mean, has gotten very uh, involved in this because they really are afraid. Good. That, and it wouldn't go through a legislative process in the U.S. That's what's interesting because it's a treaty it would have to be ratified. And, of course, that's what the movie industry and the record industry want. They don't want discussion over this. They want it to be secret, and they want it to go through without anybody knowing. And then it would be the law. Wow. You wouldn't have a choice. And so accusation without yes. proof three yes. times, and then you're banned from the Internet for life. Isn't that nice? That's horrifying. They tried to do it in New Zealand. Uh, they are, they are, if you look at the list of countries, Korea, uh, they're, they're trying to get this through in. Uh, it's just appalling, yeah. So this is something everybody... I'm glad you brought it up because it's something everybody should be aware of and uh, find out more at EFF.org. Uh, we'll keep our eye on it, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, Microsoft brought us Patch Tuesday this month of November, as they always do every month. We had um, six security bulletins on Tuesday, November 10th, so I'm sure everyone's Windows machines are lighting up with their little yellow shield saying... Oops, we got some updates for you, which will require a reboot. Um, three were critical. Uh, three were rated important. Um, they're pretty much obscure remote code execution, kernel-level things. They involved the Windows kernel and a couple of the Office apps. So, you know, nothing really earth-shattering, but uh, as usual, find a time when you can download them and uh, and shut things down and reboot your system. You want to stay current with that. Um, both Leopard and Snow Leopard, uh, the Mac OSs, were updated. Uh, Leopard to 10.5 and Snow Leopard to 10.6.2. Um, Apple, as usual, is not being very forthcoming. They, quote, said... This affects the stability, compatibility, and security of users' computers. It, yeah, thanks a lot. No kidding. You know what else it does? <laughs> and I, I'm sure there's security involved. It also breaks Atom support so that if you're running a Hackintosh, which is a, a Macintosh on one of these netbooks. Interesting. Don't update because it won't work. Anymore. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, they said that it fixes a number of security issues, yeah. including arbitrary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, <laughs> and, and and some uh, usage we don't like issues. Yeah, uh, arbitrary code execution flaws, some cross some cross site scripting vulnerabilities. There was a denial of service flaw, privilege elevation flaws, unexpected application termination, of course, unexpected boot termination in the case of these Atom machines. Uh, and also said that uh, attempts to download unsafe content may not always produce warnings. Um, and there was a, apparently there was a way for dictionary attacks against SSH logins wow. to be to not be detected. So you definitely want to update this, unless, as you said, Leo, you really can't because you, you're you're using the the Mac. Well, they got OS you, don't they? On a, yeah, on a non Mac on non Mac yep. hardware. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, update. It's 157 megs, uh, which I updated when I fired up my Mac this morning to, to fire up Skype and, and do the podcast with you, Leo. So it takes a while to grab it and update it, but definitely worth keeping current. Meanwhile, we have IKEE. I-K-E-E is the name of the, of the first iPhone worm, which is spreading only locally throughout Australia at the moment because it scans for 
for specific Australian 3G wireless networks. So it's not going to go global. Uh, what's interesting is that the way this happened is sort of a gotcha. The most, the most popular jailbreaking system for the iPhone installs an SSH server as part of its jailbreaking process. And unfortunately, it has a default password, which is set, which because being default, everybody knows what it is. So if the user who jailbreaks their iPhone in order to allow it to run non-Apple iTunes store-based software, what they're getting in the process is an SSH server which is exposed to the internet with a with a default password everyone knows. So that that's all you need to create a worm which has been created. This is the good news is this is benign relatively. It changes your wallpaper to some 80s singer guy that I've never seen or heard from. Oh, you've of. never been Rickrolled obviously. It's Rick Astley. Okay, it's an internet meme. People were uh, sending links saying, "Oh, this is the latest greatest thing," and it would be Rick Astley singing, "Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you." Anyway, it's a horrible meme. (laughs) It's a it's a prank. It's a prank. (laughs) The good well, and one other Dutch hacker actually even before this, there was a Dutch hacker who was using this hole to send offers to iPhone users to close the hole. In return for them sending him five euros to his PayPal account, so there was sort of an 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 attempt. You don't have to. Well, exactly. You don't have to. All you have to (laughs) do is suggestion. Exactly. I'd be happy to show you how to change your password (laughs) if you send me five euros, please. Well, and that's the fix, right? You just change it from the default. Yeah, that's exactly. Change it from the default. Change it to something. You know, I mean, while you're at it. Make it a gnarly password because you don't want, you know, the next thing that will happen is, well, actually what you'd love to do, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about this iPhone, I haven't looked at it, you would like to shut down this SSH service. I mean, that's really the solution is why would you want an SSH service running in your iPhone? You know, a lot of jailbroken iPhones do so you can uh, SSH into your phone. Okay, well, that's, that's one of the reasons they do it. In fact, it's a necessity for, I believe, some of the jailbreaking. So, uh, oh, in order in order to set it up like yeah, exactly. un- underneath the phone's UI and right, so forth, exactly. and then you can uh, you could turn it off. But a lot of people want to keep that. They hook up their iPhone and now they can SSH into it. It's a full operating system, so you can mess with it. In that case, change the password. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to use it. Change the password. Yeah, change the password. Yeah. Now, the biggest scary news of the week is our topic for in-depth coverage next week, which is the bad hole which has just been found in SSL. <sighs> Crud. That's there's not a, good. There's a session renegotiation hack, oh, which has boy. been discovered in the latest current version, version 3 of SSL, which we all know is also TLS. We covered the protocol at some length a while ago. I didn't talk about, for example, session renegotiation because it's sort of off the mainstream of how two machines normally hook up. Turns out that it's possible for a man in the middle to attack an SSL session, that is an existing SSL connection, and insert his own transactions into the stream. So 
People are scampering around. This has been known for a couple months. It's been kept under wraps. The um, uh, under NDA, the details were given out. I mean, this is a big, big problem. Um, it's um, the, the various standard bearers, um, the you know Open SSL and and the GNU project are working to to update their specs. There'll be a new RFC. I mean, basically, this is a fundamental flaw in the protocol that we're going to cover in depth next week. So I wanted to let everyone know I know about it because there was a bunch of people dropping uh, mail to me saying, oops, have you heard about this? Says, oh, yes, I know about this, the renegotiation problem. So we will all know about it in detail next week. Um, John Graham Cumming, who was our guest last week, uh, prepared a, a um, PDF and PowerPoint files of his slide presentation. I knew about them last week, but they were in the the PPTX format that required you to have the very latest version of Office. And so I'd asked him if he could do it in the older version of PowerPoint. He went a little further and also created a, a PDF. So you need no Microsoft PowerPoint viewer of any sort. So I just wanted to give a heads up to people that at the Security Now page at GRC, and by the way, I made it quicker to get there, grc.com slash sn. You don't even have to type out Security Now any longer uh, in response to some people in our news group saying, hey, Steve, how about slash sn? It's like, okay, you got that. So grc.com slash sn, and the, um, the episode 221, which is when we had John talking about JavaScript, I put links there to both of those files, which I'm hosting locally, uh, courtesy of John. Great. That's nice of you. That's great. And an interesting twist on Spinrite um, from someone who gave me his name. I don't have any problem sharing it. I doubt that he will because he went legit in the end. Uh, Cody Krieger. Um, he said, Dear Steve, not sure if this is the right address to send this to. Actually, he sent it to our sales address, but but Sue forwarded it to me. But to be honest... I'm feeling a bit lazy after the ordeal I've just gone through. About two months ago, I underwent a fairly serious hard drive malfunction. Two went dead. Both had an extreme case of the click of death. And another started to fail. These were all in the same machine. And frankly, I'm beginning to wonder maybe if this machine's like way over temperature or something. Um, anyway, he says, I immediately whipped out what he called my trusty copy, <clears throat> we learn out. We learn a little bit later. It wasn't quite his. I immediately whipped out my trusty copy of Spinrite and set it on bo- and set it on data recovery mode. After the long wait, I discovered that Spinrite had brought both. He put in bracketed in asterisks drives back into working order. Not feeling very trustworthy of either drive after all that clicking. As I suspect both drives' failure can be partially attributed to firmware or mechanical defects, I immediately imaged both onto their own brand new one terabyte drives. Not 10 seconds after this finished, both drive, drives collapsed dead again. This time, they failed to even spin up. I then ran Spinrite on maintenance mode on the drive that was starting to go bad. That drive has lasted me up until now. Today, 
That drive started clicking angrily at me while my system was sitting idle for the most part. I'm running Spinrite on it right now, and I'm buying another drive to replace with to, to replace it with in anticipation. Having realized how many times Spinrite has saved me, parens two months ago wasn't the first time. I figured it was time for me to actually buy a copy of the software. I confess I had been using a pirated copy. No single piece of software has ever worked wonders like this has for me, and you deserve every penny of my money for it. Thanks for making such a wonderful piece of software. Keep it up, Cody. Wow. So Isn't that nice? I love these stories. They're so heartwarming for, in well, a geeky kind of way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I frankly, I mean, I, I have a mature appreciation of the reality of software sales. Yeah. I'm, Never locked my software, copy protected, or done anything like that. Thank you. Um, that just gets in the way. Yep. I don't. I nor like you, if you look at anyone else's hard disk utility software, they tell you you can run it on exactly one drive. Well, that's ridiculous too. Yeah. I mean, if a person's going to buy it, I fully expect they're going to want to run it on all the drives they own, and that's what the license is for. Use it on any drives you personally own. So, you know, if someone is going to use a piece of pirated software. And, and accept the risk of doing so. I do know, unfortunately, that there are damaged, you know, deliberately damaged versions of Spinrite that install bad stuff on people's computers. One of the things that Greg deals with, my tech support guy, is someone will call up and say, hey, you know, Spinrite just installed a Trojan on my computer. And it's like, I don't think so. What's your serial number? <laughs> and then the guy, ah, oh, well, this isn't really my copy. Oh, great. And, you know, and then we go from there. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's certainly there. There's a risk of doing so. But if someone's going to do that, then they're not a customer of mine. So I don't recognize, I don't regard it as lost revenue or, or piracy. I mean, I, you know, I, it'd be nice if the MPAA and the, and the audio, uh, you know, the music industry had a similar mature feeling, recognizing that, you know, not every piece of song or or movie that is being viewed or listened to represents lost revenue but you know that's not the way they operate so anyway i appreciate cody's purchase and um and his great note talking about how what a good job spinride did for him well before we get to our q a and we have some great questions as usual from our audience i uh, would like to mention our friends at citrix and the guys who make go to my pc and I'm gonna, I have been saying for a long time, 128-bit SSL encryption makes, makes it the strongest encryption out there. I don't know if there's a man-in-the-middle attack that we should worry about. I suspect not, but it's uh, something we'll find out about in time. And I'm sure as soon as there's a fix, they will apply it. That's one of the things I love about Citrix. They really, this software doesn't just sit on the shelf. They are constantly making GoToMyPC better. The idea is you don't want to have to be stuck uh, at your office when you could go home early when you could uh, spend some weekends with the family, you don't want to have to drive through that traffic. I mean, every town you go to, whether it's L.A., Chicago, New York, D.C., they get the worst traffic. Wouldn't it be nice to take a day off work at home one day a week? Save yourself time, gas money, wear and tear on stress? Well, this is what GoToMyPC can do. It lets you work from anywhere, at home, uh, at on the road, at an Internet cafe. All you need is an internet connection. You can log on to go to mypc.com. Use your PC just as if you were there. Send and receive email, run any program, access any network resource. Full speed, 
full screen. No wonder this is the award-winning remote access software year in, year out, the best in class from Citrix. And now you can try it absolutely free. Go to mypc.com slash security now. The NAT traversal they use means you don't have to worry about firewall configuration, router configuration. You can use it anywhere. As long as you can get to the web, you can use go to my PC. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Go there right now. Try it free for 30 days. 30 days of unlimited use. Really knock on it, bang on it. If you're planning a business trip soon, if you'd just like to take a day off tomorrow, go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of uh, the Security Now show. And by supporting them, you support us. So give it a try. We will thank you for it. Go to mypc.com slash security now. Stevie, uh, let's, uh, I got some questions for you if you've got some answers. You ready? You, you betcha. All right. Uh, start with question number one from Mike in Baltimore, Maryland. He wonders about changing his SSH port every single day. Mm, that's interesting. Every time you talk about SSH and port configuration, I remember I want to ask this question. In addition to logging the SYN packet request, would changing the SSH open port number every day to a randomized port provide any additional security? My Linksys router running the Tomato firmware allows me to map an external port to a different internal port. I can map external port 62,305 to internal port 22, the SSH port, for example. So if I wrote a script to randomize that external port number every day, would that provide any security benefit or am I wasting my time? Thanks for the great podcasts. As soon as I stop spending so much money, I'll be buying SpinWrite and running it all on my drives. You better maybe spend some money on SpinWrite first. I currently have no problems with any, but a few are quite noisy and starting to worry me and I would like some peace of mind. What's well, an interesting strategy. What do you think? Well, um, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, I, the idea of, I mean, it's, it's sort of clever. My sense is you'd get much better benefit from using a really good, really impossible to guess username and password. Certainly moving the port around every day would prevent someone from sitting there pounding on it on, on a fixed port even if it wasn't 22 for some period of time. On the other hand, if the port disappeared, I guess they would figure you'd closed the service, but they could also just scan your IP and find where you'd moved it to. Um, the question, though, most put me in mind of, of, I think, perhaps, depending upon how Mike uses SSH, the best solution of all, which is, not to have the port mapped at all unless he has some reason to believe he will be logging in over SSH from somewhere outside of of his home or office and thus need the port mapping at all. That is to say, not running the service when you don't need the service, if that's feasible, is by far the best solution. Microsoft famously got into so much trouble during all the early years of Windows, specifically because they were running services by default all the time on every version of Windows when it was installed, even if users had absolutely no need for doing so. Remember, we lobbied, for example, about the universal plug-and-play service, and I just said, you know, it should not be running. Nobody needs it running. Sure enough, there was a bug found in it, and it became a big problem. Yep. Um, and we just, you know, the whole issue of SSH came up because, remember, there was a protocol flaw found in 
a, a, a Windows SSH daemon that was, it is a popular free SSH daemon that turns out skirts around your need to even log in. So there's a perfect example of where, of where you just, if you don't need the service running, it's really better not to just leave it open all the time. Now, for many people, it may not be feasible. Their, the way they operate, their lifestyle may be such that, you know, they can't explicitly, for whatever reason, fire up the service when they know they're going to be remotely accessing home. Maybe they never have notice of when they're going to be doing so. But it may also well be that a, that a person's mode of using remote access does give them the ability not to have this thing open all the time. In which case, turn it off when you're not using it. That's by far the best solution. Um, failing that, you know, moving it around daily is interesting. On the other hand, if you if you didn't know where your script had remapped the port, then you'd have to be checking the port mapping before you left the house <laughs> in order to know what today's port was that had been chosen. So, you know, that seems a burden also. Why not just turn it off if you're not using it? And, you know, if, it's, if your port's jumping around all over and you don't know what, what port it's on, it might as well be off anyway because you're going to have no better luck finding it than a hacker would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's security by obscurity, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and not even that and, obscure because a port scanner is going to find it right away. There's nothing wrong with some obscurity. That's, I mean, that's just another layer. But you don't want to depend upon obscurity. So when people talk about security through obscurity, and say that it's a bad thing. What's bad about it is the is if you depend upon its obscurity. It's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with adding some obscurity. That just gives you more security. But you you don't want it you don't want the obscurity to be the only security that you have. Better uh, to implement port knocking if you could do that, right? Yes, and we've got an interesting question about that too in oh. um, in our in our question bag of today. Well, port knocking coming up. Uh, let's get to uh, question two, however. Dana Ray Park in Kelseyville, California, declares herself to be an S-N-I-T head. Snite head, she calls it. <laughs> Through Leo's radio program, I got turned on to security now. Wow. That's interesting. Because usually I think people who listen to the radio program are less sophisticated. Uh, you know, I don't expect them to be the geeks. In fact, I even say when I talk about the podcast on the radio show, I say, now if you really want to geek out... But this is the geekiest of all the shows we do, so that's pretty good. Well done, Dana Ray. It took two weeks, but I finally downloaded every one of Security Now's 220 episodes. Steve, you're reminiscing about old computers took me way back to when I was selling Apple IIs and IBM ATs. Well, I guess Dana is a geek. I've been out of the game for quite a while until a couple of months ago I was using an ancient compact desktop 90, Windows 98 SE machine with dial-up. Welcome to the. Uh, can you 90s. still do that? That I, still I, works. I, <laughs> There's some modem somewhere Jeez. you can call. Then a friend of mine kludged together an XP Pro machine for me, and my landlady gave me access to her ATT DSL modem router via a 100 foot cable. <laughs> this was a quantum change and challenge for me. I bet. Steve, following your advice, I use Firefox with AdBlock, no script, tree style tab, flash block extensions, and the very useful cat mouse. Five, Steve Gibson recommended Firefox extensions. He says, when I access the 2701 HGB gateway system summary through my browser, there's a firewall icon which tells me, quote, the firewall actively blocks access of unwanted activity from the Internet. 
Am I behind two firewalls, one on the router and one on XP? Summary also says, your system software is current. Check back for future available upgrades. I don't know what the 2701HG-B gateway is. Do routers phone home for updates like XP? Am I safe? Am I practicing safe computer computing? SN Knights, SN Knight heads for a safer internet. <laughs> he signs it. That's great. Well, there are a couple things here. First of all, I wanted to remind people about Cat Mouse, uh, which Dana refers to. I just love it. And I've noticed I've, I've been using um, uh, one of my Macs uh, a lot more than usual um, for some, uh, some actually some, because the best PDP-8 emulator is running over there. And I guess the Mac, Leo, when you float your mouse over a Mac window and and then use the, the scroll wheel or ball mm-hmm. or, or whatever, mm-hmm. it, it's smart about automatically scrolling the, the, the window that you're over, right? Uh, yes, I never noticed that, but you're absolutely right. So you don't have to click on it in order to bring focus to it. Right. And Wow, that's anyway, a nice feature. I never know. <laughs> Steve, you found something. I never saw that before. But it, you're well, it's a right. fantastic feature, yeah. and that's what CatMouse, K-A-T-M-O-U-S-E, does for Windows. And I, I wanted to bring it up again because I've had so much positive feedback from people who love it as much as I do. Just, you know, the idea that you could have multiple windows... And I mean, I'm I'm a scroll wheel fanatic. I love my scroll wheel. In fact, we, we talked about the Logitech mouse, which is still my favorite, that has that that high inertia, zero friction scroll wheel where mm-hmm. you can just like spin the wheel and go whizzing through things. The it's just VX great. Nano. In fact, I'm buying more of them. I love them. I, I, I have some now in stock because yeah. I like it so much. Yeah. Oh, actually, though, there's a better one or one that I like better. And that's the, um, it's the MX Anywhere. Oh. It's the it's also Logitech. I think they call it the MX Anywhere mouse. What I like about it is that the VX Nano you have to you it provides you the ability to store the little tiny tiny little receiver, the USB receiver, yes, right in there, in, underneath the mouse. Yeah. But in order, if you and doing so turns the power off, right? Which is what's nice. But that also necessitates that you're constantly opening the little battery door and pushing the red button to pop the thing out and so forth. The the MX Anywhere mouse has also internal storage, uh, but you but the idea is the receiver lives normally just in your laptop on right. your laptop, right? And and then there's a cover uh, a, the, that you just slide with your thumb to cover up the laser um, the laser tracking that hole that shuts it off. Yes, that's much better. It's much better. The mouse also is a little bit larger and a little heftier feeling. It's not which a I laptop like. mouse. It's more of a desktop. It's but, more of a desktop mouse. But, but well, know, no. But it's meant for laptops because they lo- it's got the same micro size receiver. Oh yeah. Okay. And so anyway, I really I, I've 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 switched to that one, and I like it more because it's a it's a nice feeling mouse. But mostly, you just you know when you're done, you close your laptop, you leave the receiver sitting in the USB. Um, hole of, of you know the the USB socket of your laptop, and then just slide the cover closed on 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 the um, laser positioner, and it powers it down. So now, really my like only it. question on this is: Is it a lefty friendly mouse? Oh, I'm I I'm a left hander, but I right mouse. I mouse with my right so hand. So is it is it is it symmetric? I guess would be. It's not exactly symmetric. It looks is like the, it's slightly asymmetric, it's, but not so much that it might. No, be. it's not horribly so. Okay. 
I'll and I also like that it's got buttons all over it. It's got, you know, both the, it's got, you can do the tilt wheel and it's got a little button back behind it that works. Like, for example, the Mac does that, that expose thing. Is that what they call it? Where all the windows sort of shrink down and, and go to their corners so you can quickly <laughs> yeah. choose between windows. Yeah. It's yeah, nice not, to have those features. Yeah. So it's got you all You can those remap extra, those if you want. I mean, you don't have to. Actually, I have. I've got them. I've got the, the mount. I, who wants to horizontally scroll? I've I know. Never, I don't understand that one. No. Yeah. So I've got that set up for back and forward the browser so that I tilt the wheel to the left in order to, to go back to the prior page or to the right to go forward, and which frees up the other two buttons on the left-hand side, which I use for top of page, bottom of page in the browser. So I can instantly jump to the top if I just press the, the upper of those two or jump to the bottom, which I think is much more useful for me so yeah, yeah. anyway so well i'm yeah, gonna try I, this i i because i i'm i i'm running out of vx nanos so i have to get a, a new one yeah so try, maybe this try is the, the mx anywhere i really like it I, yeah. I think it's better than the vx nano i'll get a couple of them and, and, and i've got a few know. used vx nanos if anyone wants it. no <laughs> don't say that you'll get some email <laughs> uh okay. now and let's also, answer his specific question though right yes yeah. um he you uh, he is behind uh uh, Dana is behind two firewalls. And I thought that was an interesting point huh. that we've never really made before. And it's something we're probably going to be getting used to more and more in the future is we're all going to be behind an increasing number of firewalls. You know, over time, ISPs are beginning to do some firewalling themselves. Then you've got the firewall in your router. But any router, even if it doesn't specifically say it has firewall features. The nature of NAT routing is such that unsolicited packets coming in don't have anywhere to go. There isn't, it, it's, it's by having packets leave the network out onto the internet that a temporary mapping, a hole, is created to allow packets coming back from that, that packet's destination have a way to come back in through and know which one of the computers behind the router to go to. Failing that, unexpected packets just hit the router and drop. They're just ignored because there's nowhere for them to go. So any NAT router is a firewall. And then, thank goodness, Microsoft has turned on their firewall that's built into their OS. And I think probably every personal operating system now, no matter whether it's Microsoft, Mac, Linux, anything, there's a there's a firewall component there, which is blocking unsolicited inbound traffic. So, yes, yeah, so there's, there's multiple layers there. And finally, he asks about router firmware, which I think is the most important issue and, and point of his question. And it's something I wanted to bring up because routers do have problems manufacturers are finding problems and i don't think there's ever been a case where i've checked with my router's firmware and there has not been an update available many times there there're little non-security related things but just the other day we talked about a a really ridiculous router that was broadcasting its its um wi-fi key in the SSID that it was using, oh, and yeah. also in the MAC address, so and there stupid. was a and there was a router that had its uh, a default password um, exposed out to the WAN side. So there are 
definitely instances where manufacturers are being apprised of serious problems that firmware updates are fixing. So I just thought this was this question was a nice little reminder to me and all of our listeners to go visit your router. Um, we don't do that very often. You know, log into your router's admin page. Now, most routers require you to explicitly check to see if there's a firmware update. It sounds like this 2701 HGB, whatever it is, if it's volunteering that the so- the system software is current, it does sound like it's phoning home. It's pinging or doing something from time to time to see whether the the, the firmware is as is current or not. Now, a router typically has no way of affirmatively notifying any machines behind it. So that's why it's necessary for you to go to the router and check in with it and ask it if is there a new version of your firmware. I would just recommend, you know, I don't know how to how to, you know, add a tickler to everyone's life except, you know, here this podcast number 222 and Dana's question sort of uh, reminds us it's useful to check in with your router from time to time and see whether there's newer firmware for it um, because who knows what they will have fixed. Yeah, it's something to always, I always forget. So we'll just have to make it, you know, we'll just remind you. Right. <laughs> Keep it in mind. Check it from time to time. Yeah, I think there's no, as far as I know, there's no router that does it automatically. You kind of have to check. Yeah, the only thing they could do would be to bring up an inter, a web intercept page, right. which would be a little jarring for people. Yeah, uh, you don't you want know, to see so that. So if you were trying to go somewhere and your router blocked you and said, hey, you know, I've got new firmware. I mean, on one hand, that wouldn't be, that'd be a cool feature to if you could turn it on and you chose to turn it on, but it's not the thing you'd probably want to have on or certainly not be able uh, not to disable. You might so, not want to rely on it either. Yeah. Question three from Andrew DeFaria in Tempe, Arizona, with some SSH tips. Here's some SSH tips you didn't mention for securing uh, SSH. We should we've said SSH a few times. This is we should mention the secure way to get a terminal session on at least as far as I know on on Linux and Unix based computers. Right? I don't know well, if you- it, exactly. It stands for secure shell, where you know shell is the term of you know for like getting a command prompt window from a um from a unix environment and you there are certainly we you know, we we talked about the free ssh uh daemon the other day that had the problem but is available for windows and oh, yeah. certainly there is uh ssh for windows uh, as well what do you get though i do you get a dos i guess you get a dos prompt when you do that on windows well and there uh yeah. i don't know what you would get cuz i mean on a mac there's a terminal you know uh, there's a command line on, on on linux there's a command line but um I guess you'd get DOS. Yeah, I would think you would get the a, a command shell. And actually, the you know the Windows command has has become increasingly powerful over the years. So it is not so much just running a, a a pokey old copy of DOS that has no awareness of what the system is doing. You can start and stop services. You can reconfigure your internet connection. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do now from a from a contemporary Windows oh, yeah. command line. And if you have a web server, SSH is often uh, the way you will manage it and, and control it. Well, and yes, SSH then, the, the big thing that people do is it can be used as a tunneling protocol. We've talked about tunneling where 
The idea being you use one protocol to route packets for another different uh. protocol inside. And so SSH is is often used. It's, it's a little bit of a techie thing to set up, but it works sort of well. The other problem is that SSH is a TCP protocol, and there are all kinds of of problems with tunneling TCP in TCP because if you are in a situation where there are there's packet loss then the SSH tunnel will lose packets but those are those packets contained TCP traffic that you were tunneling and so you can end up with a situation where both of the TCP connections are timing out and are doing retransmits, and you get something called a tunnel stall as a consequence. So, the fact is, SSH um, is not an ideal tunneling protocol, but it's sort of a poor man's VPN, and, and it works. It's not what I would recommend, though. But, again, it works. Yeah. So, so continuing says, so continuing <laughs> with Andrew DeFria's recommendations, if you want to run SSH, uh, turn off username password functionality, Use a pre-shared SSH key only. And I do that uh, when I have SSH on my servers. So that way, uh, it's using public key crypto, actually. It's kind of cool. You generate a key, and you, uh, you, you share that key on the server. And when you log in, you don't have to give a password because you, you offer instead your, your key. Is that right? Am I understanding it correctly? It's exactly right. And it's... It's something I should have mentioned. So when I saw this, I thought, ah, oh, and, and I, I ought to give other people credit. Many other listeners who use SSH said, hey, Steve, forget about this whole username, password guessing altogether. Remember, we've talked many times about how SSH servers are coming under tremendous attack from, from just brute force password guessing. So it's possible to completely eliminate username and password functionality and as you say use um you know pki public key infrastructure use a previously set up ssh key which your roaming client your remote client will have your local server will have and that's the way you negotiate the connection so there you know you can let them pound on your username and password all they want they will never get in because they won't have this pre-shared key that, that you've established beforehand. That's absolutely the, the secure way to, to go about this. But it's, uh, it's you know, takes a little bit more configuration. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a whole step-by-step thing that I just run. And uh, it, I tell you, it's a real convenience and it's kind of nice. It's one of those few things where it's more convenient and more secure. So it's kind of a nice thing to have. You know, I just, I just SSH to my server and I'm in automatically. And, and nobody, I think nobody else, unless they could get my key, could do that. Um, step two. This one's even more complicated. I put together a Perl script I call BICE, B-I-C-E, that scans the logs nightly looking for attempts to break in. Of course, they can't because they need a pre-shared key, but they try to nonetheless. And I see that in my server logs all the time. Yep. Dozens and dozens of attempts. And they just, it's brute force. They're just trying random passwords. And uh, and then it emails the upstream provider to tell them to stop. I'm not sure that's such a good idea. If it... That's exactly yeah. my feeling, Leo. Yeah. I get, you know, I mean, I've been running security now for, security now, Shields Up. I've been running Shields Up for I don't know how many years. And we've got, we're on the high side of 80-something million uses. 
And every so often, there's some, I don't, I don't, I won't use any derogatory term. Uh, there's a person who has some sort of automated log reading emailer that emails complaints to level three that, that, you know, I'm trying to break into his system. Well, I've never done that in my life and I never would. You know, he's using, he or some user in his network is using Shields Up, you know, over an SSL connection so that you can't, so that we, um, we know that we're bypassing any proxies and we're connecting directly. We get the real IP. So it means that, you know, he asked us to scan the ports of his machine, which then logs the scan and has an automated emailer that sends out complaints to everybody in the world. So, you know, and I among them. So it's just uh, this automated email thing, I think, is just really dumb. And unfortunately, it's done enough that all it's doing is is causing the security services that are valuable that belong to ISPs to stop reading their mail. Because they get all this automated crap, frankly, that they just think, well, this there, there's no person here. This is just some bot that the guy set up. And, oh, isn't that clever? Read his logs and send email. Yeah. No. Yeah. Bad idea. And, you know, these are so many, there's so many break-ins. I don't really, or attempts to do this. I don't really monitor them because it just tells me something I already know. Most of them come from China. IBR, Leo. What's that? Internet, Internet background radiation. Background yeah. radiation. Yeah. That's my acronym for yeah. it. That I mean, this is unfortunately this is the reality. We got worms. I mean, this code red is still out there yeah. living on some machine, scanning around, looking for a vulnerability that we hopefully knocked off, you know, many years ago. If you if you you know, you grab a bunch of IPs and monitor the traffic, there's just garbage on the net now that will never go away it's internet background radiation it's not aimed at you it's just aimed at random ips and hoping that you know i mean stuff that's just dead that just you know i mean <laughs> there's no chance of finding you know any recipient uh, recipient target it's just out there you know packets on the net amazing isn't it yeah it really is i mean it's it's like sort of like a life form now it's yeah, just, it is it's alive it's, yeah <laughs> uh tip three you mentioned you can't trust your logs if the hacker gets in seems to me a nice modification would to be change syslog or other logging facilities to shadow all logs to a location not known to the intruder perhaps even on another system then perform comparisons with the original and shadowed log files any discrepancies would indicate a break-in to be investigated this is actually a class of uh uh, larger programs, intrusion detection programs that do things like this, right? They're always looking for changes in fundamental system files. Well, again, there's there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. And I thought this was an interesting point. I mean, I agree with Andrew. The problem is if you change syslog or other logging facilities that are running on that machine to also log somewhere else, how is that going to be unknown to an intruder who's intruded into your machine and is able to look at everything you are. So the the only way to do this is if you are logging on on the wire, as they say. That is, you know, not logging in that machine and having that machine send duplicates of its logs somewhere else. Because if it's doing that, then presumably the bad guy can know that and go there in order to in order to defeat them. And in fact, we've seen recently a situation where Bad guys were able to get in and were able to use the keys 
that a that a logging system had in order to then gain access to the system they were logging to. So exactly this kind of thing can be done. The only way to do it safely is if you have a sort of a separate machine which has which the 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 machine is monitoring has no awareness of which is promiscuously monitoring the all of the data and exactly as you said Leo like an intrusion detection system it's looking at all the traffic and and logging it itself in fact such a machine doesn't even have to have an ip i've got one myself set up that way uh, at level 3 a, a, a machine which is is logging all the traffic but it's able to be on an ethernet without an ip because remember ethernet uses mac addressing and the ip layer which is created by arp is just a convenience to allow machines to be numbered by internet protocol within the network but it's entirely unnecessary and so i have a machine that you cannot address by ip because it doesn't even have one and it works just great monitors all the traffic on the network and that makes it you know uh, quite invulnerable let's uh, move on to our next one shall we but anyway thank you andrew for some good ideas you yeah. know it's it's all about thinking about security that's the great main talking thing. points yeah absolutely Dwayne McElvain in chicago illinois wants some clarification on ssl oh boy you gave me such bad news this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stephen Leo, in a previous episode, someone brought up the idea of using SSL on every web page every time. This sounded brilliant to me, and I believe your consensus was that while it's not necessary, it's a great idea. And actually, we said that the cost nowadays on modern machines is so low. Why not? The drawback is the server overhead could be crippling. I guess he's right for a high volume site. That could maybe be a lot of overhead. Because, yes, all of the individual users are concentrating their connections to a single server. Yeah. Wasn't really thinking about that. Uh, later in episode 220, you were discussing public key encryption bit lengths and how, roughly paraphrased, please forgive me, 2048 bits is mathematically a huge jump up from 1024. But processors these days have no problem with it, so that's why some sites potentially use 2048 bits. Pardon the nitpick, but which is it? Is it overwhelming or not? <laughs> I just want to make sure I'm understanding you two correctly. Do you think that encouraging, if not requiring, SSL for all websites would work without crippling web server capacity? If not, what's the downside aside from computational cost? I'm a big fan and have been since the single-digit episodes when I discovered your show. SpinRite has saved my bits at least twice. Yay. Keep up the fantastic work, both of you. Regards, Dwayne McElvain. Okay. I think there's confusing issues here, isn't he? Well, it's because it's a confusing issue. Yes. Um, I'll give you if, that. If we were still back in the days of HTTP 1 and SSL version, well, I would say version 1, but that never really went to the world, version 2, um, then there was a concern because browsers were initiating connections for, that is a constant stream of connections, maybe 10 or 12 or 15, if you had a page with lots of, for example, images on it, when the, when the page came with all those image references, the browser would open connections, individual connections, to retrieve each one of those images. If you didn't want that, the so-called mixed content warning, where it says, remember, and, and you know, IE and, and various browsers like Firefox have different 
terminology, but it's that warning that says this page contains some secure and some insecure content. Well, that freaks people out, but normally that means that things like ads or images are not coming across SSL where the page itself did. And it can be a concern, but it's not necessarily a concern. So the way you solve the problem is if the page comes across through by SSL, then you'd like all of the references to also use SSL so the whole page is secure. That meant that it, back in the HTTP 1.0 days that the browser would open a flurry of connections to back to the, the, the origin server in order to retrieve all those bits and pieces. So each of those connections would require an SSL handshake and, and would, you know, seriously damage the server. So back then, the, the webmasters quickly learned not to leave sites in SSL, switch the user into SSL when necessary, and quickly get them back out as soon as not, because it was going to be much faster. Well, many things have happened since then. So we went to version 3 of SSL, also known as TLS, that we'll be discussing next week for reason of this recently found man-in-the-middle attack problem. One of the things that that we learned when we talked about the SSL protocol in detail is it is possible to cache credentials. That is, that expensive setup process only needs to be done once. The first time a client and a web and a remote web server talk to each other, there are time limits, but they're, they're ample. And what that means is that the client is able to say, hey, I have a, a fresh credential from a recent connection to you. Uh, how do you like to reuse that? There's no reason for the server not to do so, and servers do. What that does is it completely short circuits the expensive part of the public, the 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 expensive pu- public key part. They do negotiate a new shared secret symmetric key, which is what you want for a new connection. But that's that's instant. That takes right. no processing power at all. So so first of all, you get credential caching. The other thing that happened is HTTP evolved. That is, the, the protocol that SSL would be carrying evolved to 1.1, where browsers stopped opening individual connections for every asset that they were, they were querying from a given server. And by default, they limit their connections to two, so that a browser will open up to and no more than two connections and then they the protocol was enhanced so the browser could pipeline the browser could send multiple queries to the remote server and the remote server could could re- could return multiple assets all over a single connection so instead of bringing up a connection getting one object and then taking it down, bringing it up another connection, getting one object and taking it down. Now the browser will bring up some semi-persistent connections and do all of its work through them. So even if you didn't have credential caching, you no longer have a flurry of connections being brought up. The browser brings up uh, up to two connections and then will hold on to those um, 
as the user moves around the site, um, being able to 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 continually move pages and the server's assets, you know, other site assets, buttons and images and so forth through those connections. So my feeling is both with SSL3, also known as TLS, um, with its credential caching and the fact that all browsers now support this pipelining of multiple assets through a single connection, there just would not be a burden on contemporary servers if the sites use those features um, and left people in SSL all the time. There you go, the definitive word. <laughs> You're right. Jason M. in San Diego raises an interesting point. Stephen Leo, thanks for the great podcast. I always look forward to seeing the latest episode pop up on my media player. I have to take slight issue with your justification of, well, then this is, here we go. There's right in this, down your alley here, of using public keys of 1,024 bits. Specifically, they will expire after usually no more than three years. Uh, that's true of the certificate, but not necessarily true for the key. The certificate may expire, but nothing prevents the site operator from generating a new certificate signing request, CSR, against the same public key. I would even be so bold as to wager that very few sites actually generate new key pairs in conjunction with a new certificate. Likewise, I could wager that the certificate authorities do little, if anything, to prevent their customers from reusing key pairs or even informing their customers about the issue. As someone deeply involved with security, I'm always impressed that each episode provides new relevant information, as someone who does technical education and presentations, I'm amazed at how smooth and professional each episode is. Keep up the great work. Well done, Steve. Well, uh, Jason raises a great point. Yeah. Um, so let's elaborate a little bit. What he's, what he's talking about is that there's, a, there's sort of multiple steps for manual production of a key over in the Unix world. In the Windows world, it's pretty much automated. And he raised a question, and I thought, well, I wonder if all of my keys, for example, for grc.com over the years have been the same. So I went and looked, and every single one of them is different. <laughs> Microsoft encapsulates does the it pro- automatically. It, exactly. It yeah. encapsulates the process you, through the GUI. You press a couple buttons and it says, okay, you know, where do you want to write your new CSR, your, your, your certificate signing request? So, so what's happened behind the scenes is that a hopefully very good cryptographically strong random number generator has generated a new key pair, a public and private key pair, which um, which you want to, to be based on very good, high-quality randomness so that it can't be guessed. And remember then that what, what we're doing is we're, we're, keeping our, we're, we're keeping one of those to ourselves. It's, it's secret. The other one we're, we're going to be publishing. So what we want is we want then we want um, to provide those to the certificate authority to prove that we're the owner of this key pair and and then the the certificate authority is going to digitally sign what we call this this certificate signing request we send them as this CSR the certificate signing request requesting that they sign the certificate so it's that certificate that then has this typically 3 year expiration 
which is enforced by the certificate authority. Um, you can typically buy certificates for one, two, or three years, not longer than that, which is annoying, but that's, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a trade-off. Well, they to, yeah, they have to have some expiration, right? So Jason's point is that since technically the, the typical user controls the generation of the CSR, that there's nothing to prevent the user from just having the certificate authority re-sign the same key pair and he's right yeah you know there the 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 over in the unix world using for example uh the open ssl package you have a much more manual process right. for for generating your certificates and if you if for some reason you wanted to keep the same public key and and you know the the public key pair you could do so you could simply use the same one to submit a to generate a certificate signing request to a certificate authority they would sign it i mean they're not they're not they're doing no policing of whether it's not their you know, job exactly it's not their job and that that's the other key point is you know yes they're definitely not going to tell you wait a minute this is the same key pair you gave us 3 years ago well yeah you may have a reason for wanting to do that i can't think of a good one but you might. Um, so, uh, Jason's point, I think, was very well taken. That is that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly anyone who understands security will absolutely change their public key pair. They'll take the opportunity of renewing their certificate to, to do that. But he's completely right that there's nothing, nowhere in this system are you forced to do so. And what that would mean is... That a a ten twenty four bit public key could have a lifetime greater than three years. It could have a lifetime of forty Forever. years, fifty years. If you kept you, if you insisted on continually using the same one, you'd be exposing yourself to to a larger attack window because there'd be a much greater time for someone to get to your key. I can't think of why you would. Windows doesn't give you the option. Unix does, but standard protocol always has you regenerating your public key when you're uh, updating your certificate. So even then, you know, they, it, it seems unlikely that it would happen. But, yeah. it, but his point is, is a very good one. It could. Yeah, just something to be aware of again. Well, I like from a theoretical standpoint. It, it strengthens yeah. our understanding of what's going yes, on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Paul Wilde in Bristol, UK, feels that security shouldn't annoy the user. <laughs> Guys, love the show. Very informative. I'm in the UK. My bank smile makes you just happy to be doing business with them. Has just introduced two-factor authentication with the addition of a card reader pin generating add-on. Great, I hear you say, but it's not. It's a big calculator-sized thing you have to use when you want to use functions like bill paying. Great, I hear you say again. But it's not. It means you can only pay bills, etc., when you have this stupid, fat, ugly thing with you. A credit card-sized add-on or a key ring dongle is the way to go. It annoys me so much I'm moving the bank account. Keep up the information overload. Best, Paul Wilde. You know the best to me is cell phone. And my bank, B of A, uses that. You press a button. It sends you a text on your cell phone with a number. And you use that. And I always have the phone with me. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Um, it's funny. His his first of all, I I completely understand. I think yeah. his bank is going to get a cl- going to get a clue pretty quickly 
as they start losing accounts yeah. when they tell people. And th- and th- this big thing can't be cheap either. So I'm, well, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, who's paying for this big calculator size thing? I overheard a, a, a conversation at Starbucks that last week that I made a note. I mean, I literally right then I sent myself a text message so or email so that I would get it at home. So I would make a note so I could share it with our Security Now listeners. A guy explaining to his buddies that the the password policy at his company was so obnoxious because they made him change his password periodically and and I'm so I you know I immediately my ears perk up it's like oh wait that's good okay. that's what you're supposed to do yeah that sounds like a good policy and he yep. says the problem is they apparently remember the password you had before so you can't change the same one and, and and you can't you can't fake it out and use the same one and not really change it. Nor can you change to the one you had before. So you can't ping pong between two. And his at this point, everyone's sort of listening with rapt attention. And he says, "I figured out that apparently they remember the last five. Wow! So every time I am told that I have to change my password, and I don't want to because I like my password." <laughs> I sit there and change it five, five times. times. <laughs> and the final time I go back to the password oh, I want. And I just I That's just silly. I, <laughs> I was well, but here's the point. This is I mean there's a big lesson here of course. Yeah. That is, you know, if users are absolutely determined not to have security they're going to arrange somehow not to. Well, yeah. Even password, if it's a real big pain in the butt, apparently they're going to write the password on their forehead. Yeah, they're going to they're going to they're going to scratch it onto their LCD screen. They're going to do something. They're going. I mean, they're going to stick it underneath their keyboard. They're going to do whatever they can, you know, to get around the the best security intentions of 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 whoever's trying to protect them from themselves. I mean, you can imagine this policy. Where it's like, okay, we'll remember the last five because we really, 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 really want you to change your password and not use any that you've used before. Now, all of us, any of us who are programmers or algorithm designers, we know how to f- defeat what this guy has done with his, you know, five in a row. You just, you, 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 you make it 20. Them. <laughs> well, you make it 20 <laughs> or you prohibit them from changing the password. Right. Five times. Than, like yeah. once a day or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I just I got a big kick out of the the idea that this guy was a, he was just determined to keep the password he likes, which of course is really not secure. It's like then never changing your password, and he's figured out how to arrange never to change his password. It blows my mind that he goes to such lengths to do it. Yeah, and you know, and so when I read Paul's uh, note, security shouldn't annoy the user. I thought, okay, well, and on the other hand, sec- it should security policy should try to strike a balance yeah. between not annoying the user and getting the user to behave i guess you know it would take maybe some security training for this s- smart alec who i overheard at starbucks to understand why this was in place and i mean and he could use different passwords for every month of the year or something so so that he, you know, look, I don't know. He's just determined. He says, he I is. don't want to have to remember another password. But, I mean, the amount of time it must take to enter and change it five times. Yep. 
He's going to win. He's going to win. That's really what it's all about. This has nothing to do with anything, but I'm right. just mad and I'm going to win. Right. Jason in uh, Rochester, Minnesota had a brainstorm. Steve, I got an idea when you were talking about port knocking a couple episodes back. Since each port knock conveys one fewer than 16 bits of information. Okay. Well, okay, yeah. R- remember, because ports go from, there's no port zero. There's 16, so, bit, there's 16 bits of port. A 16 bits of port, but minus one because there's right. no port zero. 65, so it's 65535, right. not 65536. Okay. One fewer. Uh, four port knocks <laughs> equals close to, but not exactly, two to the 64th combination, 16 billion billion. But if someone happens to be sniffing the traffic during a valid knocking sequence, they know the combination. Uh huh. That's kind of a problem. What if yeah. something like the old PayPal football were used? The ports knocked would be pseudo-random, depending on a pre-shared key. You'd salt it with the key. And the time of day, let's say. What do you think, Jason in Rochester? I like that. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I'm not a fan of port knocking. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah. Well, it's bec- it's so prone to problems. First of all, the Internet is known to deliver packets out of sequence. Right. That is one of the big, you know, big things that the, the TCP protocol guarantees is that at the application layer that is above the protocol, everything will be in sequence. So, for example, when you download a file, you're just downloading, you set up a connection, and this binary blob comes through TCP. Well, you want to know that all of the chunks of the file that you receive are in the right order. So the application doesn't have to worry about that at all because TCP uses sequence numbers specifically to make sure that the packets that are, that are being reassembled at the receiving end are in the proper sequence. And in fact, packets often arrive out of order and then the TCP protocol will hold the an out-of-order packet waiting until a missing packet to fill in the gap comes along. So here we have a problem with port knocking because what this means is that if you send pa- if you send packets out to remote to remote ports you have to wait a long time or if you if, a long time to make sure that that packet got there before you send another packet and if you send them too quickly you risk the the chance that they will arrive out of order since routing can often right. do that on the internet right. and in that case you've got a bad knock so then you couldn't connect and you don't know why so you do it again and maybe you 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 luck out this time i mean it's just it's error prone the the first patent actually that i already have pending for cryptolinks technology is an invention which solves this problem completely um and it does it in a single packet um and it's very cool and we'll talk about it when i can but 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 aside from the fact that their port the port knocking has these problems it's nice and it's i mean it's um it, 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 it it's clever so what jason has suggested is well first of all he highlighted the other big problem and that is that if you have a static knocking sequence, which is the way most systems are configured, then you're, you are, you're protected from somebody 
randomly trying to access a service. So what the port knocking does is, if you knock in the proper sequence by sending, for example, in Jason's example, four packets to successively different ports in the proper sequence, something is monitoring that and we'll see that and go, oh, that's the secret knock. And then we'll open a an, a port to allow anybody incoming. Now, hopefully, if it's clever, it will only allow the same remote IP as the packet's source IP. So you've opened a port that is still filtered only to accept incoming traffic from you, the source of the knocking packets. Um, many systems don't do that. They open it for everybody, and that's, again, not as much security as you could have. But anyway, that that's what the knocking does, is open a port that you are then allowed to use to access a service that's been protected until then. So the problem is, as he points out, if your connection is being monitored, uh, someone eavesdropping, who, for example, knows you're using port knocking, if you have a static knocking sequence... All they have to do is repeat the knocking sequence, which they captured from the wire, and the port will open for them, and then they're in. So his notion was use a port knocking sequence which changes. Now, time of day is a possibility, but there's actually a better approach, and it's which can function very well. And it's a little more like the, the way the VeriSign um, credit card works, where it's a known sequence rather than a known time. That is, there is a counter which is encrypted with a secret key. So, so if, you, if you take a counter and you run it through, say, a 128-bit counter, and you run it through... 128 symmetric block cipher, you're going to get out 128 bits, which are pseudo-random. Every time the counter counts up, these bits are going to change to something different. So, you then, you take that 128 bits and say you just took the lower 64 for our example. So, those 64 bits give you the, the you, you break it up into four groups of 16 which give you the port you want to knock on. So the, the receiver would have a synchronized counter so that, so that it's able to anticipate the knocking sequence that comes in. The problem is that you might have a, a, you know, a packet dropped. Which uh, that's another problem is the internet not only resequences packets, it has a complete freedom of dropping packets at will if any router's buffers are too full along the way. So many different things could cause this knocking sequence to have a problem, meaning that these counters would get out of sequence. The beauty of this approach, though, is that if you sent two knocking sequences in a row that got through without any packet loss or reordering, and there's always the problem with port knocking, but if you did, then the recipient would be able to decode the knocking sequences back through the secret key and see that even if the counters were out of sequence, 
then what happened was two successive counts. That is, the the knocking sequence when decrypted turned into a count and then a count plus one. Well, the only way that's possible is if the other guy who sent the packets had the same secret key. So you've authenticated yourself independent of time and independent of bad knocks and their counters being desynchronized. It would allow multiple users to authenticate through the same system if they had counters in different um, states. So it's a, it's a cool way of using two successive knocking sequences to prove that you know the secret key, even if you don't know what time it is, that is, you're not, you're not timer-based, or if your counters are in different states. So with the limitations of port knocking, it is possible to come up with something that could not be sniffed. Oh, and the other thing you do is you never accept a knocking sequence that you've seen before. That is, this counter counts up for every knocking sequence. There'd never be an instance where you would get a knocking, an obsolete knocking sequence. So you only allow them to, to move forward in time, um, much like the football does moving forward in time or the, the counter in the VeriSign credit card does. So it's possible to make it work. It's just tricky. And um, because of the problems of, of packets not arriving reliably or arriving, arriving out of sequence, the whole knocking thing, um, I don't think, is a great solution. And there are better ones. And that's, uh, that's great to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> Last question. Our biometric abuse question of the week. Or story. <laughs> story of the week. Michael O'Connor of Oswego, Illinois, shares his biometric abuse story of the week. Dear Steve and Leo, I'm flabbergasted. Like many married couples, my wife and I each have our own checking account in addition to our joint account from which we pay our bills. Every couple of weeks, each one of us goes to our respective bank, withdraws some cash from our own account, and deposits it into our joint account so it has to have funds immediately available. We've done this for a couple of years. There's never really been a problem until today. Since my wife wasn't feeling well, I told her I would handle the transaction for her. All she would need to do is write out a check to me drawn on her account. I'd take it to the bank to cash it. When I pulled up to the drive-thru where I presented the check, the teller asked if I had an account with them. I said, no, but mentioned my wife did. Teller said I would need to come into the branch in order to complete the transaction. I wasn't pressed for time, and although it was a slight inconvenience, I was happy to comply. When I got into the bank, I approached the teller window, mentioned I needed to cash a check drawn on their bank. The teller asked me if I had ever cashed a check with them before. I informed her that I had not. She said that in order to cash the check, mind you, it's drawn on the bank I'm attempting, attempting to cash it at, she would need to see ID but would also need to scan my fingerprint. I can only imagine the look that I must have shot back. <laughs> what I asked? You need a scan of my fingerprint before you'll cash this check? I won't do that. I guess I caught her by surprise based on her response, where she assured me that the only way they would cash the check is if I provided them with my fingerprint. I asked to speak with the manager, and the manager informed me of the same thing. It's bank policy, and no exceptions would be made. I asked to speak with her boss whom a little less politely told me the same thing. To be honest, 
They actually made me feel like I must be hiding something if I wouldn't let them scan my finger. I shared with her my opinion of the bank's policy and quietly departed feeling emotionally mixed between pissed off and violated. Over lunch, I continued to ponder what had just happened and I couldn't believe that this was what the bank that what the bank was doing wasn't a violation of my privacy. After all, I had provided them with state-issued ID, and there was no reason to believe I was committing a crime. There, Therefore, there was absolutely no reason for them to need to access my biometric data. I'm not sure how far I'll take this impromptu crusade of mine. Or EFF, are you listening? But I thought I'd start by sharing it with you guys. After all, when it comes to computer security and privacy, you guys are one of the first resources I turn to. Thanks for letting me share my tale. Best, Michael O'Connor, Oswego, Illinois. I, yeah, it sounds like this might be something since 9-11 would be my yeah. guess. Well, first of all, I completely agree. You know, we've talked about the whole issue of, of biometrics. The, and the, you know, it's a mixed blessing. The, 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 the blessing is mixed because biometrics are not something you can change. You're able to change your password anytime you want, but your fingerprints are you. Right. And, you know, that's what makes them so valuable. For example, in criminal forensics is people tend to leave fingerprints behind and that uniquely identifies them as being them. The problem is electronic security is is basically repurposing something which I think has substantial value. Now, I can, I mean, when I renewed my driver's license last time, you know, I've, I've been, I don't drive that much. So the, the, I have not been on literally on the police radar for a long time. And I think I went however many, the maximum years is you can go. And then they said, well, look, you know, uh, we've extended you automatically as long as we can. You need to come in now, make sure. You know, you need to let us see you because we haven't seen you for so long and make sure you your eyes still work and so forth. So I was annoyed that the, the California DMV wanted my fingerprints. And it's like, okay, well, fine. I, you know, I mean, that's, I have no choice there. Um, but I would argue, as as Michael did, about casual disclosure, like we've talked about, you know, the, the Disneyland... Uh, you know, uh, uh, card gate, uh, you know, c- casual disclosure of biometric data. We don't know what the bank is doing. I don't trust the databases um, in, in, I mean, in general to keep this information from leaking. We're constantly hearing stories about this, this data getting loose. And I would hate for my fingerprints to, to be, you know, surfing the internet without me. That's just, uh, that's creepy. So anyway, I I really do, I really think that the, I mean, first of all, this is, this, as he says, he's got a valid, a valid state ID. It's his wife's check that he's cashing. So she's got the same last name as he does. I mean, this, it really does seem like a rigid policy and, and I've got to wonder, I mean, obviously this is not a huge check. If this is what they do every couple of weeks for spending money, it's probably a few hundred dollars. It's not, you know, $10,000. So I don't know. This, it really does seem like um, a bad policy. I think we're seeing it more and more everywhere. Um, but it, I think you raise a really important issue, which is that you get one and only one. 
<laughs> you, yeah, you, exactly. And yeah. if it gets loose, it's loose. Right. I mean, it, yeah. And, and you know, just casually, you know, cavalierly scanning them into some database is like, oh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I would like a firm explanation from the bank, and I don't think Michael got one. All he got was, it's our policy, sir. Well, you presumably, know? if I'm, if she had mailed me the check... Uh, you know, it's because he's cashing it at the window. I mean, it, it, if he deposited it, it, they wouldn't require. That's what's bizarre about it, right? I mean, that that, that check is something that the bank honors and and transfers money on the basis of all the time. But it's just because he's asking for cash at the window, I guess. Yeah, and you know, I guess I question it being anything relative to nine eleven because I don't think everybody else is doing this. Unless it was this a, is- a huge check. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. That's yeah, very bizarre. Well, Michael, let us know what happens. <laughs> That's not good. And Steve, we've come to the end of another thrilling, gripping edition of Security Now. <laughs> Number 222, 223 is going to talk about this recent bad news for SSL. The latest, greatest version of SSL and TLS um, and how uh, a hacker has found a way to to insert plain text into a transmission during renegotiation of of uh, security credentials during an established connection that's not good Mm-mm. i mean wow. basically you know what it means is we're go- all clients and servers will have to be updated this is not like something you can work around this is this is the ssl protocol or tls i guess i really ought to start calling it cuz that's the official name but it uh, it needs to be scrapped. Version three or or TLS one point We need to go to two point of of TLS. That's the solution, and it means it necessitates SSL being changed everywhere. Yeah, you know it'll certainly be it'll you know uh, SSL is very tolerant of backward compatibility, so new versions will come out that close this hole, which will still run back versions, but there'll be you know, an impetus for everyone to update their browsers and their, their actually, it's probably at the operating system, operating system level. So it'll be another patch that'll come out from Microsoft and the various Linuxes and Macs and, and so forth that'll fix this. My friend, we have come to the end. Right. People, there's much more if you go to grc.com. 16 kilobit versions of the show for the bandwidth impaired, Elaine's great transcriptions, all the show notes, and of course, GRC is the home of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility you must have it if you have a hard drive and all of steve's free stuff too some great wonderful free programs like shields up and wismo and all and on and on just go to grc.com gibson research corporation.com for more information steve once again we have been nominated for a podcast award in the technology section you won i think last year or the year before so yeah, uh, we, we we cheated though what we asked people to vote for us yeah we 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 used our listeners who just overwhelmingly came out, and yeah. we just we, we should we should do that everybody else. So just, I won't it, mention that if you wanted to vote for a show on the Twit Network, that you would go to <laughs> podcastawards.com and starting November thirteenth, cast your vote. I wouldn't say that because you're right; it, that wouldn't be fair to the other it guys. It wasn't even a contest. Our listeners stood up for us, and it was game over. Yeah. So do, so whatever you know, just you know, forget that I mentioned that. <laughs> We're nominated. A lot of shows are nominated this year around. So, uh, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there's like other people than Twit? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In that case, everybody, let's go swap everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mention that part. Yeah. There is a competition here. We don't want you to lose. We want one of the, we want, want, we want the Twitch shows to win. Nah, that's fine. I don't care. Hey, Steve, it's great to talk to you. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.